If a successful colonization is to divide and conquer, an answer to that has to be reconnecting the pieces they are trying to divide. This podcast attempts to hold space to connect the pieces of Palestinian society because it is the dissolution of Palestine across the world that calls for spaces to reassemble the people. So, grab a cup of shai or kahwa, and let's have a conversation. This is Connecting the Fragments. and I'm having a conversation with the resilient Rania, a Palestinian activist and student whose ferocity for a free Palestine is only matched by the love for her people. Today we are talking about the conditions Palestinians must endure and the way it shapes us as a society. We will situate this conversation in the grander themes of the show with existence, resistance, and overall fragmentation. Hi. Hi. I'm sitting here with the lovely Rania, and I know you, uh, but for the sake of those who are listening to us right now, can you tell us a bit about yourself and your family's history? Yes. So, hi, my name's Rania. I was born and raised in Chicago. Um, A little bit about myself. I work in research right now. I graduated from Loyola. Also, I'm a part of USPCN, political org in Chicago, which focuses on, you know, Palestinian issues. Yeah, that's a little bit about me. The place that I come from in Palestine is Bethlehem. Um, and specifically, my family is from Dehesha refugee camp in Bethlehem, with Dehesha being part of Bethlehem. I mean, it still is a part of Bethlehem, but it's kind of just like on the edge now. But the edge of Bethlehem. Yes, it's like on, on one edge. So my father was born and raised in the camp. And then he came to America when he was in his 20s. Okay. My mom was also born and I would say half raised in the camp. And then her family moved out of the camp into Bejala, which Bejala is, is a small city next to Bethlehem. When you think of like cities within like the West Bank, like Bethlehem, Bejala, Doha, like they're very, very small. You could drive from like one to the other within like five minutes um, or Dehesha or whatever. It's kind of just like Orland Park, Tinley Park, Palos Hills sort of thing, but much, much smaller. I mean, Chicago's probably bigger than the, the West Bank. <laughs> but yeah, my mom, she and then her family moved to Bejala. They have their own, they got, they got their own land. They have their own like, I don't say house because homes in Palestine, they're like, uh, they kind of look like apartment buildings sort of thing. Like you have, and now all my uncles are married. So they built on top or they built next or whatever. And then also because settlements, Israeli settlements are growing. So Bethlehem and Bejala all in itself, it's getting, the land is, is, is getting taken up more because people are obviously, they're getting married. They're having kids. They want their own place, whatever. They're building more, I guess you could call it apartment buildings. My mom's side of the family, they had, I don't know what the English equivalent of Jabal is. I don't know if it's mountains or valleys or, but they had this large Jabal in the, like kind of like their backyard. And now it doesn't really exist like that anymore. There's a lot of mini walls. There's a lot of uh, other buildings being built. 
a lot of the land that was like free has also been taken where like we can't really like enter there. IDF was like, no, you you can't like play around here anymore, whatever it is. Tajin itself has gotten larger, but it's also a camp, so it's very, very, very crowded. You could like hear your neighbors like cough sort of thing. That's like the joke that people say. So my mom came when she was also in her 20s. Mm-hmm. She made my father. She decided, okay, I'll come with him to America. My mom didn't come straight away to America. She was she stayed there for a year. My mom got pregnant with me. And then halfway through her pregnancy, I think, she came to America. And she had me in America. I, growing up, I wish I wasn't. But then again, like now that I'm an adult, I'm actually kind of happy that I have um, American citizenship. Because it's actually like a privilege having that freedom to like roam. Uh, I'm the only one of my siblings that has dual citizenship. I don't think it makes much of a, a much of a difference like in places other than Palestine like and in other countries I don't really need it. But like when I go into Palestine, okay, so uh, all throughout my life me and my mom we had to get permission to enter through. So we we like flying into Tel Aviv than Gurion. It's cheaper, it's much much easier. I hate the Jordanian border. Um, it's like such a hassle. So if I don't have to do it, I don't, I don't do it. Ben Gurion is, is obviously terrifying because like, it's, it's much more like the Israelis and Ben Gurion are much more intense than at the border. So the last time I went through Ben Gurion airport, I was, um, I think I was 18. I was by myself. My mom and my brother, my, my sisters, they went because they wanted to go earlier than me. So I went maybe a few weeks after them. Um, I can basically speak off of my off of my experience. You go to the you you get to the airport. Obviously, like because I'm a Palestinian citizen, this is a little different. Of course, I have to have something called the tasrih, which is a kind of like a permission slip. It's a form that says I am allowed to enter Israel, basically, hmm. for whatever time being. So the kind of tasrih that I get, okay, growing up, is the the tasrih that says I am allowed to enter. In Israel, and it expires when I so when I when I when I enter Israel to go to Ben Gurion Airport to go back to America, and then when I when I um, want to come back, so when I'm coming back from America to uh, and I fly into Ben Gurion Airport, and I use my tasrih, and then that tasrih expires, and I have to apply for a new one. Of course, if I apply for a new one and I get a tasrih, I can of course enter through 48. Like, they have this table, or not like a table, they have their little office, which is, like, open, and then next to their office, they have, like, this, um, it's like a room, but it's not a room, because it's just, the airport is just open space, so what they did is they just, like, uh, I remember it being, like, just, like, against the wall, they, they picked a corner, and then they put, like, another plastic sort of wall on one side, and then it's just, like, open, there's no, like, door or anything. Um, I would say all Arabs or anyone that is suspicious or whatever it is, like based off of your name or if you're Muslim or whatever, if you have like, you know, a Muslim name even. Um, so they, anyone, whatever they want, they put you in the, in their little room thing and you just kind of sit there. You can sit there for as long as they want you to. And you could sit there for hours. And they ask you a series of questions. They always ask about family. So, okay, who's your father? What's your father's name? Uh... Why are you go? Why are you coming here? Who are you going to see? What are you going to do? Things like that. 
Um, they basically want to see if your answers matches up a lot of the records. If you're lying about anything, if you're you know planning to do anything, you answer based off of like what you are sure is on like is within their records. I mean, they have records of everything. Right. Um, so so they ask you those questions, mm-hmm. right? Then you go, they they tell you to go sit down, right? You go sit down. You wait for however long. Sometimes it's short. Sometimes it's it's 20 minutes. Sometimes it's a couple hours, whatever it is. They call you back up, and guess what they do? They ask you the same exact questions that asked you before, and they're asking you, to get, asking you again. They, they can do this. They, they can do this, this cycle maybe three, four more times if they want to. It's, it's supposed to irritate you. It's supposed to anger you. It's really, it's, it's a lot easier to keep your composure, but I think the last few years of my life, keeping myself patient and holding in my anger has become a little bit difficult for me. Not just in this situation, just generally in life. I think I've just become an angrier person. But when I went when I was 18, I didn't have a tasrih. Uh They were trying to force me to, to, to buy my own flight to, to go to Jordan, basically. I got really lucky because there was this black soldier, mm-hmm. I think. Um, he was kind of on the side. And he noticed. And then he just, like, taps me. And he goes, like, wait, hold on. Let me, let me, let me handle this. And I looked at him and I was like, okay. Because um, I see that it's black. And I'm like, okay, it's safe. But then again, I see he's wearing a uniform. And I'm like, okay, maybe not safe. Um, <laughs> the contradictions right when we feel yeah, those comfortable. are always extremely confusing for me right um, we feel comfortable with other people of color and yet when we know that they are working with the occupation or complicit in it it's hard yeah, yeah. but that's still conflicting for me because he went in he was well he didn't go in I mean they talk about you in front of you and they're talking in Hebrew and I don't really know much Hebrew so I know that they're laughing at me and I'm just sitting there like hey what's up <laughs> So he just turns to me, this guy, mm-hmm. and he goes like, you're free to go. And I was like, what? And he's like, yeah, you, you go, you're free to go. And he's like, here's a tip. You should probably learn Hebrew. It might serve you well next time. And I was just like shocked because like this, this guy helped me. Like he helped me go through. And when you, when you are free to go, like literally the, the feeling that you have is like amazing. Um, I know that feeling. Yeah. <laughs> I do not recommend if you want to cross the border, you cross an Israeli, you do whatever, whatever the hell they ask you to. You're nice as hell. I don't, I don't sell your soul, dude. I don't care. Like do anything to, to get in the smoothest way possible. Like that's, that's not, (laughs) that is not the moment you want to go all revolutionary and and asshole radical. Like that is not the, the time to do that. The thing is like, because I have also my Palestinian passport and citizenship and whatever ID card, I can get treated the same as my cousin. But you make a point. Like, I can leave Palestine because I, I live in America and I'm able to do that. And the thing is, like, for example, like my, my siblings, they can get banned from Palestine, right? Right. I can't, but I can get arrested and jailed because I'm also a Palestinian citizen. My American citizenship honestly means nothing because I have my Palestinian citizenship to Israelis. To them, I'm still a Palestinian citizen, whatever that is. But if I was jailed and imprisoned because I'm also an American citizen, for example, like USPCN can take my case and be like, and go talk to legislators or whatever. If you're just a Palestinian citizen, you can't, there's not really much that Americans and Palestinians in America can really do with that. I want to bring it back a little bit and I want to talk about uh, your family. Can you talk a little bit about your family being from the refugee camp and 
if there is one thing you could relate to the world about being a refugee or knowing that, you know, what a refugee camp is like, if there's one thing that you would be able to relate to the world, what would it be? I also want to mention that the land within Adhesha is cheaper. So sometimes people even, you know, within Bethlehem or whatever, come and build in Adhesha. The thing is about the camp, basically, um, back in 1948, right, my family... When I say my family, I'm saying mainly my, my father's side because that's how we identify. I mean, also my mother's side too. So my father's side, we, we, we come from Jrash. Jrash is this this uh, village that is in Jerusalem, basically, north of Jerusalem. Of course, I've never been, but I, I do have a couple of, a couple of uncles and um, a couple cousins that have gone, that were able to, to see Jrash, but not many of us. Why do you say, um, of course, you've never been? I've never been able to go. I. What prevents you from going? So, before I was 16, I had it to Surya so I could go into 48, right? But I've never been able to go to Jirash because uh, before I was 16, no one I knew had been to Jirash and there wasn't really, it wasn't easy to get to Jirash. Jirash is in this, this, it's very hidden. It's empty, it's hidden. It, you need someone who, someone, like a professional, I think. Mm-hmm. I don't know what they're called, um, like a professional sort of person, to take you there. I've just, I've just, I don't know, I just have never gone. Okay. I want to, but from after I was 16 till now, I've never been allowed to get a tasrih. They don't give me one anymore. Uh, they don't want to give me one. My mom's side of the family, they came, my mom is from Ajur, which I don't really know exactly where that is. So basically... My mom's side of the family and my dad's side of the family. So when they were running away, obviously, for survival to live. So my grandmother, my grandparents, okay? So my grandparents on my father's side, they both survived. Their family survived. My grandmother's fam- my grandmother on my father's side, her family, a lot of them went to Jordan. But um, all of us from Jrash went to Bethlehem and you know they were living basically they saw all this land they built tents whatever it is they lived in tents right they lived on the ground not in homes not anything like that eventually it started building into homes and what what the camp looks like today my mother's side my grandfather from Ajur most of his family was murdered they were murdered in front of him mm-hmm. as his family was getting murdered him his older brother and he has a younger brother, which is like kind of like his baby brother. His oldest brother grabbed him and told him, grab your, grab your brother, we're leaving. And that's it. They, they grabbed each other, basically, and they ran. But yeah, my, my grandfather saw his parents, like, basically murdered in front of him. And they ran. Same, they, they all got to, I guess, Bethlehem. So a lot of this land, obviously, Dehesha, what it, what it is. Um, and they just kind of made, made a home for themselves. And they built homes. My grandfather, you know, my mom's father, mm-hmm. he, you know, he got married to my grandmother. They had kids, whatever it is. When my mom was young, she was probably in middle school, early high school. My grandfather said, I don't want to live in the camp anymore. And during those times, Dejah, uh, of course, didn't look like how it does today. Um, so they moved out, right? They went to Bejara. My grand, my father's side, so basically... When they eventually built a home, I mean, the home still exists today, of course, but when they built the home, you had my dad and my uncles and my aunts. So I had three aunts. I have, how many uncles do I have? (laughs) Five other uncles. 
six. Damn. Okay. Spoken like a true so, Arab. Yeah, basically. Yep. They they were a big family. You had my grandfather, my grandmother, and they were all in one room. My father, my father, like my uncles and stuff like that. They had to start working since they were like six, seven, eight little rascals getting money wherever they could, selling whatever they could. They were extremely poor. Like like buying toothpaste was difficult for them. So yeah, basically, like people like my father, who grew up like that, they have been working literally their entire lives, scraping money from anywhere and everywhere. Like when I think about like my lifestyle versus my father's, my father to this day, if he just has toothpaste, shampoo, soap, he's fine, right? He doesn't need all that extra stuff because that's how they, that's how they grew up. They they grew up without that extra stuff. So my grandmother's home, no one actually built on top of it. Um, so you have right next to my, my grandmother's home, connected to it, right? But it's just connected by a wall. My one uncle built built his home. Mm-hmm. You have on the other side of my, my, my grandmother's house, there's space. And you have my other uncle, he built a home. And then you have, uh, you could walk a little bit. And then you have my uncle, he built his home. But how things are today, you can't do that today. There's no space to build next next to the the home or whatever it is you have to build on top so they my one uncle when he got married this is the oldest he actually built below Mm -hmm. and then my other uncles they built on top so you have the second level my one uncle has it the third level my other uncle has it and so the family Um, is just stacked on top of each other yeah and there's no like rooftops on these homes right there's no like rooftop to to symbolize, okay, you can't build on top. It's just like concrete. Like I could go to the roof and it's just concrete and you can build on top if you really wanted to. That's the commonality in all Arab homes in Palestine is that you can just continue building on top. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. There's no more space to keep building sideways next to each other. Yeah. That's the thing. You Horizontal. can't build sideways anymore because there isn't space to do so. Yeah. You build on top. And then you're connected, like your family's connected through the, that way. But, um... Um, so then there's even, beauty to being connected to your family, but also there's that, there's the idea that, that it's kind of a forced connection. <laughs> so I, I can, I can see what you're saying. I think an important thing that I want the world to know is that, I don't want to say it like this because this is unfair, because all Palestinians, no matter where you are, whether you're in Palestine or outside of Palestine, whether you're a refugee, whether you're not, because you don't you don't get to choose whether you were born a refugee or not, right? It doesn't whether you you were lucky enough to keep your land or not. Things just happened as as they did. But what I'd like to say is that Palestinian refugees are truly, honestly, they are they are the people that I feel like they they are the people who really really carry what Palestine truly means. They're the people that invoke hope, true hope, okay? Even though that hope is starting to get thinner and thinner and thinner and less and less. As hope is dwindling these days, they're the ones who I see are carrying it. And they're the ones that are, when I think of refugee kids, they're such little shits, but they're, they're so smart. They're fearless. If you wrong anyone in the camp, the whole camp will come after you. Like, these people that live in the camps they're the people that truly fight for palestine every single day and they remind people that you that we still have to carry this hope that freedom is ours and true freedom not that peace shit that some palestinians are starting to you know agree with because the occupation is so 
unbearable now that though some people are are trying to think maybe we should just settle but no we, we can't what is true freedom all of palestine so get rid of the complete demolition of israel have us return give us back our lands allow us the opportunity to return to them if we want to freedom of travel freedom of movement freedom of identity free freedom of being remove the walls the checkpoints everything um a lot of us that come from the camps at least from atesha we can't, a lot of us come from you know jerusalem i mean i do too right my family does too we come from al quds and and to see what al quds is today and to not be able to to touch it or be with it is extremely devastating it's like a pain that doesn't go away when i personally when i look at uh aqsa al quds i just like even right now like i feel like i'm going to start crying al quds to me is like a woman that's just like crying and just like yelling out that's extremely depressing for us that come from al quds but cannot go to al quds that cannot see it cannot whatever it is and when when you i don't know it's just like the inability to to even go there to see it and then see other people living there other people that took it from you and they are creating false narratives false whatever it is you bring me into my next question really well here um so thank you for that because you're talking about the different ways that palestinians have become fragmented right so it it brings it all back to how we've been fragmented and 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 the ways in which the settler colonialism and occupation fragments us as a people um, and, and what that really looks like. You're talking about a very raw, real image of, of what that looks like. What part mm-hmm. of the fragmentation would you say you belong to as someone who comes from a family who comes from this refugee camp, who half the family was able to move out, and then both parents were able to eventually come here to the United States and uh, you were eventually born here in the United States, you and your siblings. And I under and I say this understanding that there are many layers to fragmentation and belonging to something can mean many things and it's all truly relevant to the person. So again, what part of the fragmentation do you think you belong to? So it's funny because in my mind, okay, I'm just this this person who comes from a very low class in America, right? But to to Palestinians, okay, in Palestine they don't understand this concept of low class existing in America. Okay, they think if you live in America that means you must be really rich. So, to me, it's for me I'm just this 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 Palestinian, right? Who's who's also from Tisha, also from Bethlehem, whatever it is, but I live in America and I lived my whole life in America and I'm I'm not, they don't say you're an American, but they say you're an American. You're kind of from the outside now. And I've lived here long enough where you could even see those differences. So that's where I stand. Class or not class, it doesn't matter if you're an American, you're probably the highest of them all. The most privileged. Yeah. <laughs> you can escape whenever you want. You live a bougie life in America. That's what they think. What do you think? What I think is I'm honestly my family here in America is more poor than my family in Palestine. That is the reality of it. The complication the how complicated life in America is. The thing about the thing about America is that life is so complicated here whereas in Palestine Palestine is it's not better or worse to live in America or to live in Palestine because in Palestine you're living under occupation right right that's awful but people don't suffer in the same ways as we do here i feel like when i look at things comparatively 
sometimes I feel like my life here, a lot of the eras that live similarly to me in America, I feel like our lives sometimes are just more, it's just more unbearable than like life compared to maybe what my family members are living in Palestine or what a lot of people are living. What is, what do you mean by the conditions here versus there? So what I think is, okay, I think like it's, it's much more expensive to live in America. And if you're poor in America, it's much more difficult to live rather than if you are poor in Palestine. Here in America, it's not as easy to get an education as you think it might be. Also, if you get an education, you're going to be stuck with a whole bunch of loans um, that will follow you for the rest of your life. That's what I'm dealing with now. I'm dealing with, with the fear of homelessness, the inability to pay rent, the constant working whether it is my father or myself or my mom always, always working and still unable to pay for like either your rent or your bills. And like the fear of homelessness is extremely real. Also, there's there's something that's that's nice about. So there's a difference between social life here in America and a social life in Palestine, um, because in America we live in an independent, whereas in in countries like Palestine, like Japan, or whatever, it's a collectivist society. Mm-hmm. So family life is very it's it's highlighted there. Like you could see it much more. It's much more vibrant. It's much more alive. Like people are able to work like normal hours, and they come home, they see their families, whatever it is. Like I feel like here we're working ourselves like basically half to death, and we don't really see each other. We're kind of like the hustle bustle of life, sort of thing. Yeah. And it's not that life here is better or worse, but I think here in America we also have a lot of fear and a lot of as as Arabs as Palestinians like we have a lot of things that hit us whether they be like racism or whatever it is. Talking about the fragmentation and talking about or thinking about where you belong in the fragmentation, where you think you belong in the fragmentation. What are the conditions that you believe keeps Palestinians fragmented from each other? I actually think it's a lot of different factors. So I think the outside factors, whether that be um, oppressive forces, right? Trying to break us down, trying to separate us, trying to whatever it is. What are the oppressive forces? So either colonialists, right? Whether they be like colonialists from Arab lands or whatever it is. Now, I mean, it was the Brits and now it's, it's, it's Israel, right? Which is apartheid basically, right? And then you have here in America... I don't know if this is the right word, but I think it's a learned behavior. So I think it, it started a lot with outside forces coming in, um, whether that be like colonialist forces or and and or oppressive forces that don't exist today and also exist today. So in some Arab countries, they're obviously not under colonial rule. In other countries, they're, of course, under uh, still under apartheid regimes or under oppressive rules or whatever it is. Like, for example, Palestine is still under Israel. I think outside forces have have separated us obviously on purpose um it's an agenda it's like it's the agenda to to separate us so that we don't unify against um these forces uh and i think it's a learned behavior because i think we we have kind of carried those those mindsets of like differences throughout the years so whether we brought them with us when we went to other countries such as for example america but then when we got to america there's a lot of different um, issues, whether it be um, like society separating us or thinking of us, othering us as a whole. And then also 
outside forces othering us between us. So maybe within us, we might look a little different, or maybe we, we I'm Muslim and another Arab is Christian. or whatever. So it's just like othering us and, and making us, forcing us to see those differences. Um, even though we didn't care for those differences before, it's like now we do and now we see differences, whatever they, they are. So to summarize, you're saying that you know, we've always had differences because we've always come from different areas and, and different families and different parts of society. And yeah. they matter now in a way that they didn't before because of the oppressive forces, uh, which is Israel and, and the U.S. that has come in and made those differences mean something that they didn't mean before. Exactly. Like okay. they made us seem like, like, for example, in Palestine, they made us, they made it seem like you know, we, we couldn't come together. Even though we're trying really hard to make those differences not be differences that keep us apart, unfortunately, they're kind of keeping us apart. Whether that be because of class, whether it be because of, you know, different education levels or whatever it is, it exists. How do you think Palestinians push against that kind of conditioning? If I was going to marry someone who I personally think my parents won't accept... You, I feel like a lot of us, like this is just an example that I'm using because I feel like it's the easiest way to, to, to explain it. So for example, I was going to marry someone who was also Arab, maybe not Arab, Arab, whatever it is, who, who is different to me. I have a college degree. Maybe he doesn't or is a different religion than me or a different sect or comes from a family that has a very bad reputation or I come from a family of a bad reputation or because, for example, I come from a Tesha and uh, of someone who doesn't come from a Daesha, that also might be a complication, or because of my family name, things like that, okay? I think every Arab who has the possibility of their partner not being accepted from their parents has to either think about, is this worth it to almost ruin everything, whether the possibility of getting disowned or having to go through a huge fight for a couple of years until they accept or whatever it is, is that worth it? Or is it not worth it? And a lot of people would rather just stick to the, to their own status quo because they don't think in the end it's worth it. A lot of people don't think it's worth it. A and lot do of people think, don't fight that. And do you think you can apply this example to almost everything concerning life? So the conditioning that you're saying that like was differences before, right? Yeah. That wasn't yeah. as big of a deal as they are now has created such a big deal for us to keep our identity in a way, right? Do you think that that's where it may be rooted in is, is that, no, I'm from this family or I'm from this town or we're from this amount of, of privilege, right? This class, we belong to this, you know, uh, religion. And if we intermarry or if we let, if we somehow blur the lines by accepting someone else from a different portion, we lose the identity that's already being erased and stolen from us. Yeah. And not just that. There's become a fear, for example, if you allow your daughter to marry someone from, you know, someone that's different. There's this huge fear of sending your child to someone that's raised differently. It's like as if you're sending them off. I don't, it's it's like, yeah, it's it's yeah. like um, there's this phrase that, that we use a lot, you know, like they're not like us. You know, they're they're different. They weren't raised the same. So how can I send you off to be to to this to this man or for whatever when he like they're like as if as if if someone if if for example like 
this doctor from Bethlehem or whatever it is who comes from a good religious family came and asked for my hand is much more secure than someone who isn't. I don't know why. So there's this idea of as long as it's better, there's a way to to accept it, but... It's like, it's safer because it looks the same. Mm. It's safer. It's more secure. This person is less likely to ruin you if they're the same as us. (laughs) Do you think that that's a societal construct that conditions an oppressed living on our own people? I think it could be. Okay. Do you think that there's... I mean, it sounds almost traumatic the way you describe it. So would you say that there's this like trauma or social trauma that's attached to us living everyday life? Because there's this always this idea of having to preserve it and having to protect it. Yeah. And not even just that. I mean, along the lines of that, it's like because your normal life is always under attack, always under threat... Everything when you're within your life is done to be sure that it's going to be easy or stable or whatever it is. It's life, it's, life in general is already so difficult. Mm-hmm. For example, life under occupation or you know, life under oppressive rule. All of those things is already so difficult. Life in itself is so right. unstable. Why would you make other parts of your life difficult? Building off of that. And, and kind of taking everything that you've said into consideration up until this point. So when you think of living within your own fragmentation, right? Okay. And part of it, a part of living within that fragmentation has been essentially forced upon you through conditionings that you have no control over. How does that relate to the notion of existing of, as Palestinian and then also resisting those conditions? How do you relate within it? Like, within my own fragmentation, one thing that I consider a big part of my identity, for example, um, is class, I guess. Like, um, a huge part is the financial instability part, right? Right. So, how I resist, actually, a lot of the time, I like to think of it as uh, my poetry and performing that. So, it's funny because I feel like, for example, my mom she'll see our fragmentation, but I don't like to see our fragmentation, for example. I think, like, when when I see my own fragmentation, it becomes very difficult because, and trying to understand my own fragmentation has become very difficult because in my, in my head, how I would like to, how I organize, how I, how I revolt, whatever it is, how I rebel, is in the idea of unifying that, those fragmentations. One thing I think, one thing for me that I feel like isn't unified is the financial parts of that fragmentation. So you think class plays a huge part of the fragmentations within Palestinian society? I think it does. I think there's a lot of bitterness between class. Which can be applied to like anywhere, right? In the world. That's true. That's true. I see, I I think I see it a lot more... um, I mean, you see it in Palestine, of course, a lot. But, like, when I'm thinking of things in my head, I'm seeing it through Arab society here in Chicago, for example. So I'm going to jump into my next question here. Okay. What does being Palestinian mean to you? And how do you understand existing as Palestinian? Huh. That's a cute question. I don't know. I think, I think, this is going to be a little bit nationalistic, of course. I don't like nationalism, but... 
disclaimer. Um, to answer this question, I just want to say, like, I don't know, like, being Palestinian is, is a privilege. To have Palestinian blood within you is a privilege. Like, I think what a lot of people forget is being Palestinian doesn't mean you could speak Arabic, for example. Like, you don't have to be fluent. You don't have to. If the only word you know is Habibi, if you are, if you are half, if you are 25%, if you are whatever it is, like, if you have Palestinian blood within you, you are fully and completely Palestinian and nothing can remove that identity from you. Not the way you speak, not the way you are, not nothing. Like, it doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're active or not. I feel like being Palestinian itself is a form of protest. It's revolutionary in itself to be a Palestinian, to exist, to stay existing. If you do nothing within politics, for example, and you are out there studying to be, you know, the best librarian or whatever it is, like the best, I don't want to just say lawyer, doctor, whatever it is, because, you know, it doesn't doesn't matter what you do, because I feel we need Palestinians everywhere or Arab everywhere. But it's like, it doesn't matter if, you, if you're not the type that's like free Palestine, whatever, whatever, whatever. But if you are a Palestinian who is making themselves making themselves to be something in this world, that is a form of revolution to me. That is a form of protest that is, that is, you know, it's beautiful to see. Because as Palestinians, truly, we hear this a lot, truly to just exist every single day is beautiful. Because growing up, everything was against us. Whether you're in Palestine, whether you're in America, whatever it is, like, even as an eight-year-old, me saying I'm Palestinian, nobody knew what that was. And that in itself was a form of violence to me. That in itself is, is, is traumatic for someone to not acknowledge your identity, to not just even, even people that were against Palestine, not even just to mock or harass your identity, to not even acknowledge your identity, to be completely invisible. Yeah, I hear you. That in itself is a form of violence. So you always existing, trying to, with all the issues that might happen between us growing up, whether it is your identity issues, figuring out who you are, whatever it is, what even being a Palestinian means to you, to always remember and be conscious that conscious that you are Palestinian is significant. Wow, you got me getting emotional over here. Um, <laughs> I appreciate that, uh, everything that you just said. That, that leads me to my next question. Is there a difference between existing as Palestinian and living as Palestinian to you? Do you see a difference between existing and living? So I would assume existing is staying alive, surviving. I would assume living is, I mean, when you say I'm living, right? You're not just going by day to day. You are trying to make meaning, I guess. It makes me sad. What about it makes you sad? For people that have never felt like they can make a connection to their identity, that are just like, I've actually, you know, I've, I've of course met Arab or Palestinians that are just like, yeah, I was born as Palestinian, whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's like, there is no connection to that. Sometimes it's because their parents, you know, just didn't really help them through that or whatever, whatever it is. Like there's a lot of different factors that can go into that. But sometimes that makes me sad because I don't know whether, whether it is your Palestinian or not, but to to be able to have an identity that is yours, to engage in a culture and everything a part of that culture, whether it is the food, the, 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 the clothes, the, the, the people, the, the dance, whatever it is like to allow yourself to be a part of that, I think is, like, why would you not? 
why would you deny yourself of such a beautiful thing, you know? Do you think Palestinian existence is tied to notions of resistance? <sighs> yeah. I think, I think as a people, we should always remind ourselves that that is not all that we are, but we, we have huge ties to it. What could Palestinian life look like if Palestinian existence wasn't tied to resistance against Ooh. these systems of powers? You know, systems what? of powers that attempt to exclude us from these systems themselves. Would we even exist? <laughs> That's the issue is like, if we never resisted, we wouldn't exist in it. But what could it look like? Not before, but but today and tomorrow. What could Palestinian life look like if our existence wasn't tied to resistance? I feel like we would just look like, you know, like Italians and Greek people. I don't know. Like we're, <laughs> we We'd would look like others. We'd be like everybody for. else. We would just be. We would be all of the music, the the clothes, the dancing, whatever it is, all of that without the fighting an oppressive force <laughs> without the protest without the need to we wouldn't need to fight there wouldn't be that element to it do you think palestinians could ever exist one day where resistance is isn't so embedded in us without that need to always fight i think we can i definitely think we can i think that people would be happier for that with that it's exhausting to always live fighting against something and the people are exhausted if palestine was free today mm -hmm. what do you think it would look like tomorrow oh my god <laughs> i honestly just is that your palestine final answer is free today you know what i would see <laughs> i would see all the kids okay all the families everyone just rushing into 48 whether it be hefa whether it be literally caramel whatever it is like every part would just be filled with Palestinians. I don't know that's what I see, but that's also positive. <laughs> Let's hope so, we don't see burning and fire and things like that. No, I love that. You see the return. I see the return, yeah. It's ours. It's ours again. So then what happens if Palestine achieves statehood? Yeah, honestly, I would see that. I would see people would start to rethink their, their family lives. For example... People that are, are thinking about, you know, building more homes or whatever. We don't have to think about the pressures of less and less land. We don't have to think about, I don't know. I also think um, one huge component is, is prisoner life. All those people get to come home. I just see it as, as like... A coming home? A coming home, like a celebration. And you just get to rethink of your life without limitations. There's nothing to limit you. You know how life, for example, in Greece is like? That's how I would see it as. You don't think that there would be a new form of... not the to government? say Yeah, not to say like an occupation, but you don't think there might be some oppressive factors within a new government? That they oh. wouldn't be just the same thing under a different name? Hmm. I mean, considering then what that's the... that's not freedom. That's a beautiful answer. That's not freedom. That's not what we want. Then we got to keep fighting. That's beautiful. So then do we ever get to stop resisting? One day it will come, Habibti. <laughs> it will come. But until then, unfortunately, we have to keep... We have to keep fighting. But it will come. Freedom will come. I know it will. Thank you, Rania, so much. I 
truly appreciate having this conversation with you and it was an honor. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for our conversation today. Remember, each of our experiences are valid and each of us are needed. We each carry a bit of Palestine in us. No matter where we reside in the world, we are all a part of the collective. Until liberation and return.